Okay. So picking up where we left off in part one, we're now in January. We spent Christmas Eve, Christmas, New Year's Eve, New Year's, all of those holidays, basically, in the hospital with my dad. And we're also now at the point where we've realized this is going to be a long hurdle. You know, originally we thought it would just be a few weeks in the hospital, he'd be transferred out, go to long-term acute care, and maybe we're naive for thinking that in the first place. But hey, my only medical experience comes from Grey's Anatomy, so I wasn't exactly well-versed in this kind of thing. Anyways, this is really when their crazy roller coaster ride begins. If you're asking yourself, has it not been crazy up to this point, like, you went on and on in the last episode about how things with Charles was imploding and how things with your dad were touch and go for weeks after his accident. Well, yes, that's all true, but that was truly only the beginning. So I kind of already told you the past few weeks or the first few weeks of my dad being in the hospital, what was happening with him and what was happening with my relationship separately. But the rest of it is kind of best told in parallel with one another because Everything during this period affected one another. You can't look at one thing that happened without seeing how it influenced the other. I think I may have mentioned in part one that Charles only went to the hospital with me once throughout the entirety of my dad's stay there, which just baffles anyone when I tell them. And honestly, the only reason that he went that one day was because it was logistically convenient. So the day he came with me to the hospital to see my dad, we were going to my best friend's birthday brunch in Georgetown in the early afternoon after going to the hospital because I just, I didn't want to miss a day of seeing my dad. So he agreed to come with me, you know, earlier on in the morning and then we'd go to brunch together afterwards. This was a period where I was trying to literally not show any cracks to anyone in my life or even to myself. You know, I was trying to balance being the perfect daughter, being at the hospital, every day as long as I could because I wanted to spend time with my dad, obviously, regardless if he was conscious or not. I just wanted to make sure that my presence was felt by him. And then I was also trying to emotionally support my mom when she was there because, you know, it was taking an emotional toll on all of us. And I just want to make sure she felt supported and make sure my dad was having someone there with him as much as possible. But I was also trying to balance everything else in my life. I was trying to balance going to work. I was trying to balance being a good friend. I didn't want to miss any birthdays, any holidays, any hangouts. And obviously all my friends knew it was happening. That said, you know, like while none of them would have faulted me if I had said, oh, I can't make this birthday. Obviously I have a lot going on. I just refused to believe I couldn't go on with life as normal. Of course, now that I say it and kind of saying this out loud. I understand how absurd it all sounds, but in the moment it made perfect sense to me that I could just keep acting like everything was fine. That said, I was really nervous to leave my dad and go to brunch because he was still very critical and we're always kind of on edge, afraid that things could get worse at any moment and would get worse at any moment. But my mom and my brother, you know, they encouraged me to go and try to have a normal day. I had been at the hospital, you know, basically every day for weeks. And that that kind of thing, it does take a strain on you, just seeing a loved one in that state, you know, trying to keep up morale, even when you're feeling really defeated. And so I think they were like, you need to go have a normal day away from here. Like, you need to go be with your friends. You need to go do something for you. 
So they assured me they'd give me a call if anything changed. So Charles and I went to brunch. And I'd really say that day is when my relationship hit the point of no return. For context, this brunch was for my longtime best friend from high school, Kyra, and um, our close-knit group of college friends. Um, So different people I lived with or met in college. And then a group of kind of her friends from college and then everyone's boyfriends. So it was a pretty large group of us. And, you know, at this point, things had been really tense when Charles and me lately due to his lack of support with everything with my dad. But we had had kind of, you know, those conversations couples have before they go out if they've been in a fight of like, we're going to be okay. We're just going to pretend everything's fine. Let's just enjoy the day. We had one of those like, hey, things may not be the best with us. This is one of our friend's birthdays. We're going to go have fun with the group. We're going to have a good day. Let's not let our tension and like our shit get in the way of everyone else. So I thought we were on the same page with that. That quickly went out the window. Pretty, pretty soon into brunch, Charles made a racist remark towards one of our friends saying she looked like an Asian woman when drunk. And that shit just doesn't fly with me. You can say I am too pl- correct. You can say I'm a buzzkill. You can say whatever you want in response to that. I'm not someone who finds those kind of jokes funny. I find them, what I just said, I find them racist and appalling. And I was horrendously embarrassed that he would even think that, let alone say that. That said, I wasn't going to cause, again, I wasn't going to cause a public scene. I was trying to make sure like we were as amenable as possible, but I did text him privately saying, what the hell? That's not cool. Knock it off. Like, we'll talk about this later, but don't say anything else like that. Like that is absolutely inappropriate. And he proceeded to reply to the message I'd sent out loud kind of announcing that I had texted him that and telling me to stop being mean and trying to get everyone on his side of like, can you believe that? Like, you don't think it was racist, right? And trying to get everyone to tell um, me that it didn't bother anyone, that it was harmless. So needless to say, everyone's just kind of ignoring him of being like, let's just move on with our brunch. Um, I was at my wits end at this point though. And I, I thought about just leaving and going home, but this was my best friend's birthday and I wanted it to be special and I wanted to celebrate her. So I was trying to look on the bright side of this is still salvageable. I just won't talk to him. Like I will just tolerate him and make it through the rest of the day and we'll address this later. So following the brunch, we went to a few different bars and we avoided interacting with each other. Like he's friends with like all my friends, boyfriends. Like I was doing my thing with my friends. Like we kind of just, didn't have to interact. And it did work well until we arrived to the last bar. So we get to the last bar and we sat at one of those long picnic style benches. Some folks had gone home. So there was about eight of us at this point, like really our core group, like the group that had been friends, like for years, like everyone had been with their partner at the time, like four plus years, like all the boyfriends had known each other for that amount of time. Like this was like, you know, the people you go through college with, go through adulthood with, like, that's that group. Like, we're all very close. We're all very drunk. I'm saying that because, yes, there are some things that we say to each other that's, like, we're comfortable, like, 
talking about our relationship issues or we're comfortable like talking about that gross thing that happened to us or like talking about our family shit because we are so close. But that said, there are still boundaries of what you don't bring up in front of a group or that you address in private. I'll also add that, yes, while we were all very drunk, I've always been a believer that being drunk isn't an excuse for someone's bad behavior. If you say something hurtful or negative or do something that negatively impacts someone else or hurts them, you need to own that shit. Being drunk isn't an excuse. You know, like, I've done a lot of dumb shit drunk, but 90% of the time, I'd say, the only person that's impacted has been me. And if it ends up impacting someone else, like, if I speak to someone harshly when drunk or say something I did not mean or that was hurtful, I own that. And this isn't me trying to be preachy. I just think it's really important of, like, drunkness isn't an excuse for behavior. Like, it's an explanation. Like, hey, I was drunk. I'm sorry. Like, that was dumb. But it's not an excuse. You still have to kind of own it. This is all to preface, essentially, like, we're at the table. And Charles is kind of just acting a fool. He put his finger in one of my friend's faces and told her to, like, like literally put his finger in her face and honestly I wouldn't have blamed her if she smacked him for this like he was just telling like obnoxious jokes kind of just offending various people at the table like saying dumb shit like oh remember when you did this and like bringing up stuff that was like a sore subject I did snap and I said that out loud I was like knock it off and his reply to that was announcing to the table watch out everyone Jenny is breaking up with me. And I think that was just my emotional last straw. Because this is like, when I say he announced it, I mean like everyone at the table. He was like, ooh, Jenny is breaking up with me as if it was a joke. He was completely lacking self-awareness of like, this is our friend's birthday. This is not the time or the place for us to have like this argument or this discussion. But I didn't want to cause a scene or anything. And ruin my friend's birthday. If you haven't sensed, that's a pattern. I just, I never want to be the one, like, causing a scene. And, like, my friend was so drunk. Like, Kyra was blissfully unaware that anything was wrong. And I wanted to keep it like that. Like, she didn't find out that all this was transpiring throughout the day at her birthday for, like, a while. But I just got up from the table and went to the bathroom at that point. And I just sobbed. Like, that was the moment it clicked. Like, this my relationship's disintegrating, my dad's still in the hospital, like, hey, I left being with my dad to come to this, to have, you know, a fun day with friends, like, instead, like, I just got kind of shit on by my partner, like, all day, and, like, I just feel like my life is falling apart. Everything just boiled over, and, you know, I finally kind of pulled myself together, like, I, like, was able to calm down and go back out and just kind of pretend, like, nothing happened. Like, I think anyone with, like, a smidge of self-awareness, that wasn't shade at Kyra, I promise. She was blissfully drunk, and I love that for her. I'm so glad. Like, it didn't ruin her birthday. That was my goal. But, like, I mean, Charles didn't know anything was wrong, but everyone else was like, okay, this is awkward. What just happened? And I called Charles an Uber. Like, as soon as I came back out of the bathroom, I was like, you're going home, buddy. I think I literally just, like, called him an Uber, shoved him in the Uber, made sure he had, like, apartment keys, and that was it. Like, this is obviously someone I still, like, cared about. I want to make sure he got home. I had his location. Like, 
did that. But like, as far as I was concerned, that was my due diligence. I was like, I can't be around him right now. Like I wasn't going to go with him and like end up being like berated more by him or like in this like state where he clearly wasn't in a position to like have a rational conversation with me about whatever he was feeling, whatever we're going through. Like I wasn't going to put myself in that position to be around him. So I called my Uber back to Arlington and proceeded to then get in this Uber and cry the entire ride home. Like literally bawled my eyes out. I was nonsensical. I was still quite drunk at this point. And I'm just like going on and on about my relationship of four years is falling apart. Like I thought he was the love of my life. Like we just went to San Diego. Like I just don't know what to do. Do I end things? Am I crazy? Like, do I keep trying to make it work? In that moment, I was just breaking down, not making any sense. This Uber driver was really baffled and I was just so thankful I was not going home to my apartment, not going home to Charles. Before calling my Uber, I had called my friends who lived near me in Arlington and was basically sobbing and they were very baffled by everything. And they, you know, had said, come on over. Like, you sound really upset. I just basically was like, I can't go home. Like, can I please come over there? So the Uber dropped me off at their apartment and I promptly go to the couch and cry for another hour straight, letting out everything I'd been holding in about how scared I was about my dad dying how I felt alone, like literally like was not getting any support on the home front. Like I hadn't confided any of my friends to that point about that. Like everyone just kind of assumed like, oh, like he's probably going to the hospital with her. Like he's probably helping like emotionally, like checking in on like how she's doing, like all that. And it just, no one knew that wasn't the case. Like I kind of recanted everything from that day. Like how he yelled at me while my dad was in surgery, how he had been in the hospital. And like, I'm not trying to make an episode where I'm just shitting on my ex. I really, that was not the intention of this episode, but just to like kind of paint a picture of how drastically your life can change, especially like in a short amount of time. Like I wish him the best. I genuinely mean it when I say that, but I learned a lot of life lessons from this. And, you know, These were choices made. These were decisions made, words said, and they have impacted me. So I think I'm kind of entitled to sharing, sharing that story. So the next morning, you know, I eventually, I eventually get up off of my, uh, friend's couch and stop sobbing and go to sleep. Um, so the next morning when Charles wakes up, I just go, you know, yesterday was bad, right? Like, there's no way other way to put it. Like, I just wanted to genuinely hear from him what the hell was going through his head. Like, why he seemed to have all this, like, anger towards me yesterday. You know, why he was behaving that way. Like, was there anything that, like, I did that triggered him? Because, like, at this point, I gaslit myself so much back then. Like, I really did. Like, I was always, like, am I the reason he's acting like this? Like, am I in the wrong for like calling him out on that joke? Like, was I acting like a bitch? Like, what did I do? I just normalized everything and just accepted everything as okay. And like, I don't know if that was a coping mechanism or what, but I was at the point where like, we had to address like all my resentment and frustration 
And so I just let it out. I was like, you know, yesterday was bad. Like, right. And this is where I like to say he was saved by the bell in kind of a weird, twisted sort of way. Um, because before we could really dive into how horrible the day before had been. And that I just like couldn't keep doing this cycle of like us fighting and then making up and then fighting and then making up and having like these really like horrible climactic fights. I got a phone call. And this is kind of another occurring theme from this. If you can't tell of whenever I get a phone call during this time, it's never good. And it was complete deja vu back to the first time my mom called me telling me about my dad's accident, except this time she was notifying me that my dad was in septic shock and to hurry to the hospital because they weren't sure how long he was going to make it. Septic shock essentially means that well, sepsis is a widespread infection that causes like your blood pressure to drop and put strain on all your major organs. But when you go into septic shock, it means that you've reached a point where your organs are severely failing all at once. Like they're literally like your body's in shock. Like it, it is in point of no return mode. So while they did manage to pull my dad out of septic shock, it was a pretty, pretty tumultuous morning of not knowing whether or not he was going to live, you know, like literally like us rushing to the hospital, like my mom, my brother and me and them like trying to pull him out of shock, like doing everything they could. And well, they did manage to pull him out of shock. Um, he would continue to be in sepsis for the next few weeks, which as I said, is just like continuous organ failure basically. And this was a very scary period, particularly as normally when someone has sepsis, you can identify the source of the infection and treat that source, like an infected line to the body, like his feeding tube or something like that. Like that's what they originally suspected that maybe had caused it, but that wasn't the case. Um, and not being able to get source control means that you're kind of flying blind, trying to find a combination of medicines that would help the infection. So an army of doctors and like literally, like, I mean, an army of doctors, like there's the residents assigned to the SICU, the infectious disease team, the nephrologist for kidneys, the cardiologist for his heart, the pulmonologist for his lungs, and so many more I can't even remember. But like one-on-one nurses, surgical interns were always rotating around him and everyone was just trying to get him out of sepsis. They were like, anxiously circling around him just like every second of the day because that's how kind of dire the situation is when you're in sepsis and they were all checking one thing and not trying to make a joke out of this but like it is kind of comical to me they were all constantly checking my dad's urine output honestly my dad and I have always been close but an experience I really never thought I'd go through as like an adult daughter is being excited for him to like pee on his own. Like, I remember very distinctly the resident on call the day that, like, my dad, like, urinated on his own, like, literally clapped when it happened and was, like, basically jumping up and down for joy because at this point, like, his kidneys had been in failure. Like, that means, like, they're not functioning. Like, urinating is a sign of, like, oh, like, he's starting to respond to the medicine. Like, his kidneys are slowly improving. Like, he has turned a corner now is essentially what that means. So 
that was like a point of celebration. But to rewind a little bit, there were a long few weeks before that point. Like he was in sepsis for quite a bit. And some combination of my brother, myself, my mom, one of our close family members was always by his side during those weeks. Like while he wasn't conscious most of the time, you know, I wanted to make sure again that like he felt our presence there. Everyone always says, or at least all the doctors were always saying like, morale and having your presence there for a family member is like half a battle. I don't know if there are actually studies about that. Like, I don't know how true that is, but at least it gave us, it made us feel like we could contribute something. So really just like would come and like blast classic rock all day on repeat when he was conscious. I would be surprised if the entire nursing staff didn't memorize Baby Blue or Blackbird from how many times I played it like every day. Something was always playing. Music was really my dad's and my love language. And for me, it was also, as I said, the only way I really knew how to ease a little bit of his suffering and like keep that morale up. So during this period of time, I was truly just shuffling between going to the office half the day, leaving, then working in the sicky waiting room so I could overlap my mom and be at the hospital with her part of the day and check on her and see how she was doing emotionally or, you know, being back in the room with my dad once my mom left and then going home and sleeping and doing it all again the next day. So it was truly like Groundhog Day, like just repeating day in, day out, you know, hoping that we were getting closer to my dad getting stronger and getting out of sepsis. So because I was rarely home except to sleep, shower, change, repeat. I didn't see Charles a lot during those weeks. And we really didn't have a chance to even address what happened at brunch. You know, I think we both knew that our relationship was at a breaking point. But frankly, at that point, I simply didn't have the energy to do anything about it. All of my energy was just going to getting through each day to hoping my dad made it through the next day. And like, when you're in that state, like I think I said this in the last episode, but you really don't have like the emotional wherewithal to like deal with anything else. Like that was the one focus. Eventually my dad did come out of sepsis and the next few weeks were actually like pretty, pretty special where he still was really critically ill and facing, you know, what would have been a long road to recovery, but he was really my dad again. Like I, I don't know how to properly articulate this, but this was, I think the only period in the hospital of his stay in the hospital where he was mostly lucid consistently. You know, he had color in his face and like there was light in his eyes and his personality really shone through again. Like I remember him still being sassy, even though he couldn't talk, like going there and saying, do you want to hear about this like op-ed I wrote about deregulatory practices in the EU when it comes to sustainable labels? And he literally looked at me like that was the most boring topic on earth and shook his head. And I was like, okay, cool, dad. (laughs) Like he was just so sassy and stubborn, like while he was himself feeling like himself again, like it was really about two weeks of like him actually like really knowing we were there, like playing the music with him, like keeping him company watching basketball games, you know, our hope was building that he'd be able to be transferred out of the SICU and into a long-term care facility and that he'd eventually, you know, be able to get to that facility and get the tracheotomy out and relearn how to walk and talk. 
And that was the case for a few weeks. And like that time meant so much to me and my family of even though like he couldn't communicate through writing or talking, like just knowing that he was lucid and present with us for at least a few weeks. And, you know, for at least the most part, not in pain, like his medicines were balanced. Like he was just healing during that period, having that slow improvement. But I remember pretty vividly the morning that kind of all went downhill. I remember I was having, like it was Saturday morning, I was having a pretty slow start. He'd been steady for those few weeks. So I felt like I could breathe for the first time in a while. Like I really at this point was like, okay, my dad's going to get to the hospital soon. Everything's great. Like I'm calm. Like I decided to sleep in and I was looking forward to just having like a chill morning, making breakfast, drinking my coffee, like on the balcony. Because when you've been living in a state of urgency for so long, those simple moments become so precious to you. Like it may sound trivial, but the idea of being able to just sit for a little bit and like slowly sip my coffee and like listen to some music, maybe watch some TV, maybe read a book, just like have a leisurely morning was restorative for me. Like I hadn't had those chill moments in so long. I was so ready to just have some time to myself that morning. And I think that's part of what made this call even more jarring, kind of like a shock to my system because it felt like the universe was going, you're such a sucker. Like you really thought you could relax. No, we're going to pull the rug right out from under you. But I got this call from a resident who'd come to know our family pretty well. And I could hear the sadness and frustration in his voice. It's kind of a pattern with my dad's case, unfortunately, that every time we took a few steps forward, we took like five back. He told me that my dad was not only back in sepsis, but that it was a lot worse this time. And something about sepsis is it comes on quite quickly. So his heart and his lungs were severely failing. And I want to be clear here, it's not because anything the doctors or nurses or did anything like that. Like they were doing everything they could to try to make sure he didn't get another infection. Like they were putting so much energy and time into my dad's case. But there's only so much you can do sometimes. So at this point, my brother, my mom, and I kind of are back in fight or flight mode of like, we once again rushed to the hospital and are meeting with the whole team about what our options are because the typical treatment for sepsis would be what they had done before, a continuous stream of antibiotics, like what helped him really put, be pulled out of sepsis before. But since it was so much more severe and taking such a heavy toll on his organs, they let us know that one of the best treatment options that was available was to put him on ECMO. So putting him on ECMO would give him hypothetically a fighting chance by taking the strain off his lungs and heart because an ECMO machine, it pumps and oxygenates a patient's blood like outside the body. It'd be a tube that took the blood out of my dad into the machine like a washing machine, except the machine, like, it wasn't, like, cleaning the blood. It was, like, oxygenating it and then putting it back in his body. So, essentially, like, his heart and lungs wouldn't be doing any work because they really couldn't. Like, they were failing. Like, when I say if we hadn't put my dad on ECMO, like, he wouldn't have made it very long. So, this was kind of our Hail Mary attempt to give his body a chance to rest and heal. But I do think, you know, deep down, I knew that day that my dad was not going to go home to us. Like, I think we realized like this was a very exhaustive measure. Like ECMO is normally something you do for like palliative care, 
towards the end of someone's life, like just to keep them comfortable. And you know, while the doctors were trying to be really hopeful, things were pretty grim at this point. And it made everything kind of, for better or for worse, so much clearer to me about what I needed to do in that moment. So I get in the car and I drive home and I'm just very calm with the decision I had made in my head. I hadn't heard from Charles all day, not uh, how is your dad doing? Like you were told your dad might not make it through the day. Like, is there anything I can do for you? Like, is he going to like make it through the day? Like, what did the doctor say? Like, are you okay? Like, can I bring you anything? And like, this is the kind of thing of like, I wasn't providing like my friend groups, like daily updates on my dad, but like I had texted kind of my core group of friends saying like, Hey, like this might be it. We don't know if he's making the day. And I had been in constant communication essentially with them saying, you know, do you need anything? Does your mom need anything? How can we help you? Like, how can we emotionally support you? How can we be there for you? Like, this is a really difficult period for you. Not once did I get that text from Charles. Not once did I get, hey, like, I'm worried about your dad. Nothing. And don't get me wrong. Again, I'm not trying to be like, woe is me. Like, I, I know what unwavering love and support looks like. My friends have shown me what unwavering love and support looks like. My parents' dedication to each other over the years through my mom's various like physical and mental struggles and her being by my dad's side every day while he's in the hospital has shown me what unwavering love and dedication is. I know that how Charles treated me during those months is not how you treat someone you love. And I think that's exactly what I said to him when I ended things, this is not how you treat someone you love. And that said, we had been together for a long time and that's not something you just easily get over. I still had a lot of care and respect for a relationship as a whole. And, you know, there were so many years where everything was great between us. And I hope was hoping that when we ended things that we could be amicable, but that just didn't end up being the case. I wasn't really prepared for how deeply I would be cut by this, you know, in my head, and maybe this sounds fucked up. I looked at ending things as kind of a sense of relief. I was really having this point of, I think my dad is going to die. I would rather be alone than have this person by my side. Like that is what drove me like the final catalyst to ending things. And that sounds like such a messed up thought, but like that is where I was at. Like I was at a point where like ending things was going to be a relief and make my life easier during this tumultuous period. While it did to an extent, you know, bring me relief of like, I don't have to kind of deal with this behavior any longer. It ended up in the short term hurting because of his actions and his words towards me in the end. We'll go into all of it, but essentially I was accused of exaggerating my dad's status and trying to use my dad's health issues to emotionally manipulate him and that I needed to reflect on what kind of person I was. But one thing I'm really good at is just being fine. I used to have this laptop sticker that had the words, it's fine, I'm fine, everything's fine, next to a scene of everything going up in flames. And this just tends to be how I am, which It's given the sense I'm calm in crisis and I can keep functioning when like my life's literally falling apart, but also totally not something to be proud of because it means I don't really ever emotionally process things 
until they all boil over. But for the most part, I just internalize and I keep going. And even though I was shocked by everything he said and really hurt, I was like, I do not have time. I literally do not have time to be sad over my relationship ending. I need to focus on my family. Like, I just put put all my emotions about this relationship in a little, like, tight box and, like, sealed it. But that was just all I could do at the moment. I was like, if I let myself break down like it is not going to be good like I need to be able to function like I need to be able to focus on my family and that's exactly what I was able to do just spend the next month with my family having that time to say goodbye that last month meant everything to us and the doctors did give us the gift of time with him to laugh to cry, to reminisce, to say goodbye and let him feel how loved he was by our family and everyone who knew him. And that's just something that as horrible as it was to let go, we'll always be grateful that hopefully he could at least feel our presence there with him and know truly how much he was loved. At the end of that month, his condition just declined so rapidly that we had to make the decision to let him go. We couldn't be selfish and, you know, keep him in a state of suffering for us. So we made that decision to let him rest. And I don't think it really seemed real to me for a while because one thing, as I've said, that not only do I do exceptionally well, but my brother also does, is just continuing to function in crisis. And the days following my dad's death, we immediately went into logistics, crisis, make sure everything's okay mode. Less than 24 hours after his death, we were picking out a spot in the graveyard where we'd want his casket to be placed in picking out a casket. And the next day after that, we were picking out the clothes we'd want him buried in and met with a rabbi to choose readings for the service. And the day after that, we were figuring out the food menu for the celebration of life. Like how many people were coming? What allergies did they have? Any of that might seem so asinine, but that's just how we are. We, we keep moving. Um, we did choose to not sit shiva and instead opted to have a celebration of life um a party is exactly what my dad would have wanted he would have wanted everyone taking shots of jack and reminiscing on all the fun times that they had with him but honestly i barely remember any any of the service or the celebration of life but it's kind of hard to describe i think anyone who saw me during those first few weeks after my dad died probably could explain it better than me of I was there but I wasn't fully there because what no one really tells you about when you lose a family member is that you're not just grieving them you are grieving your family dynamic you know the stability they provided so after losing my dad like everything kind of shifted like the role that he had obviously no one can replace but that's something that my brother and I were trying to fill those gaps of being there emotionally for like 
family members, being there emotionally for my mom, like handling those logistics. And, you know, you also end up kind of grieving a version of yourself. Like I, in that moment, wasn't really recognizing, you know, all the ways I had changed during the time of my dad being in the hospital and because of his death. And like, I'm still figuring out like my personality and how I've changed from kind of the person I was before for better or for worse. But those are all things that kind of get compounded during that time of you're figuring out your family dynamic, you're figuring out yourself, you're figuring out how to just keep everything going. As I said, we're really all still just figuring out to a certain extent, but that was really the beginning of the first chapter of my life without my dad and navigating how to stand on my own two feet and really having to think, what would he do? What would he want me to do? What do I need to do? But that said, I think I realize a lot of the time that he is still with me every day through the lessons that he instilled in me. And I think these are lessons that everyone, especially young females, should be told at some point in their life. And also just have been given the opportunity now to reflect on everything that this period of my life taught me and what I learned from kind of going through these horribly negative experiences. So that's kind of the whole point of why I wanted to make this podcast of not just lessons learned from my dad and not just lessons learned from this period, but all the experiences I've had over this past year and that I'm continuing to have and the lessons I'm continuing to learn and and that I think might be helpful for others to learn from too, because I know some of these were really hard lessons for me to learn, but have been invaluable when it comes to my growth and kind of redefining the person I am and who I want to be. So these are kind of the top lessons that I've learned from this period of time and from my dad overall. But I'd say the first most important lesson is really feel your feelings. I say this as someone who has spent the entire episode and last episode going on about how I kind of just kept going throughout all of this. I like I had some moments where I had breakdowns, but for the most part, I just kept going. And when I say feel your feelings, I mean, there's a difference, a very strong distinction between rationally categorizing your feelings, like saying, I'm sad, my relationship ended. I'm angry, my relationship ended. I'm devastated over the loss of my dad. I'm stressed about the future and what my future holds. There's a difference between rationally kind of recognizing those are emotions that pair with the events happening in my life and then taking the time to feel them. And I think this is something that honestly a lot of people do. Like you can realize you're in a slump or you can realize you're sad or you can realize that you're not really thriving. Like you're having a period where you're like just okay or you're stressed or you're anxious but you just keep at least going through the motions or you just keep pushing yourself to be okay. And I think for me, I needed, I mean, I'm, I'm preaching this, but it basically took me having like a full on breakdown 
maybe maybe I'll talk about that in another episode. But basically, I had a full-on breakdown where everything caught up to me. All the feelings I was ignoring, everything, everything I just hadn't wanted to deal with caught up to me. And that's the thing. If you don't feel your feelings, they will catch up to you. It will always catch up to you. And so I think like taking time, like whatever that looks like to you to feel those feelings. For me, it putting into practice different ways to process what I'm feeling and letting myself feel those feelings, knowing it's okay to not be okay. When I feel sad and need to cry, hey, I've gotten very comfortable crying in public. You know, I've had moments where I'm reminded of my dad and the sense of loss is just so overwhelming. Like I saw these coffee beans a few months ago that reminded me of him and just automatically wanted to cry. I was in Florida and saw all these like dads with their kids and fam on family vacations. And it made me really sad and want to cry. And so I did. I took moments to kind of just be sad. And obviously like, it's hard. Like you have to you know, in everyday life, you still have to live your life. Like you have work, you have everything, but like finding the time that you can to feel those feelings, even if in that moment you're like, I can't break down, you know, taking time that night, like to journal or taking time to, you know, really reflect on like, why did I feel this way in that moment? Or like just sitting with that discomfort, sitting with not being okay and recognizing that that won't be the feeling you have forever, but that it's okay okay to not be okay all the time and to feel whatever feelings you're having, not just keeping going through the motions, keeping going as if everything's okay. Because at the end of the day, you're just doing yourself a disservice and it's going to catch up to you in the long run. And I think for me, lesson number one and lesson number two kind of go in tandem with one another of give yourself permission to rest. I grew up in a productivity household. I grew up always doing something. I'm also extroverted, always having plans. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know, being driven or trying to spend time with your friends and doing fun things. Like that's perfectly normal, perfectly healthy. I think the thing for me at least was I got to a point where I was doing things as distractions because I didn't want to feel my feelings because I didn't feel like I could take time to rest because I didn't want to give myself permission to rest. I thought it was, you know, almost a sign of weakness to take that time to rest, to recoup, to process everything that I was going through. And I think especially how a lot of us grew up, we do have that mindset of productivity or like as a culture, we have like this idea of like side hustles and monetizing things and always doing more work, you know, like being productive and like what do you have to show for your efforts, right? Like we don't put, or I think we're just now starting to put more of an emphasis on like individual well-being and holistic wellness and doing things for the sake of it bringing you joy and no other reason. Like that's enough. But I don't think we're quite at the point where people have normalized resting. You know, rest can look like different things. Rest can look like maybe you're not doing as much as you normally do one day, or it can be like full on like kill day, like overall, whatever rest looks like to you. Like even if it's just taking moments in your day that are more calm, more tranquil, just for yourself. 
adding that into your life, like giving yourself space to feel your feelings, taking time to rest, like can really make a world of difference, or at least it did for me. And honestly, I think it's so important. Like, as I said, like this really helped me cope with like my grief and like my breakup. But overall, in everyday life, especially when we're all moving a thousand miles a minute, it can be really easy to be productive at every second of every day and get to that point where you just feel exhausted and overwhelmed and emotionally burnt out and even physically burnt out. And having that space to kind of unwind helps set you up for success and avoid getting to that point of complete burnout. Because, you know, I didn't do that and I did burn out and I did have like a point where I just fully could not function. Like I hit a wall because I didn't feel my feelings and I didn't rest and it all caught up to me. And that's often what it takes for a lot of people to finally rest, to finally feel what they're feeling is having everything catch up to them. So I'm telling you, it's so much better to try to instill a habit of taking time for rest and taking time to unwind and having that time where it's just for you. And maybe these two things, resting and feeling your feelings, are things that all the girlies have already been doing and are just new to me. But that said, I think they are actually hard to do. They are easier said than done. I still have to remind myself to kind of take that time when I'm feeling overwhelmed, when I'm feeling stressed, to journal, to let out my emotions, to take time to do something that lets me relax, that brings me joy. As someone who, you know, suffers from anxiety and depression and who is having almost near daily panic attacks in the months following my dad's death. These are things that aren't, you know, a silver bullet solution. Like I'm not saying that, like these are habits that they haven't cured my mental health, but they are a tool in my toolbox for when I'm feeling anxious, when I'm feeling overwhelmed, when I'm feeling stressed. I think they're really helpful for anyone who is going through any kind of tough emotion that they're struggling to process. The next few things that I want to talk about are really lessons I learned from my dad. Because something you have to understand is my dad and I raised my brother and I equal in the sense of like, I was told from day one that I could do anything a man could do and I could do it better. Like he really instilled the sense of confidence and standing on my own two feet to me. And I think that's something that, you know, not everyone has been gifted that experience. Not everyone has had that instilled in them from such a young age. And I think that's something that's so important. And this is kind of all to say the lesson that I learned or actually really had to be reminded of is know your worth and walk away when necessary. Obviously, I talked a lot about everything I put up with Charles and how I didn't really have the emotional wherewithal throughout to always deal with it. But I think I also just got caught up in the complacency of it to a certain extent. And something that like I kind of needed to remember is if they can't handle you at your worst, they don't deserve you at your best. Yes, that is a Marilyn Monroe quote. But just really being able to take a step back in those moments and reflect on how true that is. Like, I was expending so much energy in addition to everything I was like handling with my family to fix a relationship that was no longer serving me, that 
was no longer bringing me joy, that was no longer filling me with love, that was no longer supporting me. And, you know, I'm referring to a romantic relationship. This can also translate to friendships. This can also translate to all sorts of different relationships of that there has to be reciprocity. There has to be kind of equal matching of energy. And obviously sometimes relationships are not always 50-50. I know that's a controversial statement, but anyone who has been in a relationship knows that there are times where you do have to shoulder a little bit more. Like even with Charles, like when I was in grad school and I was doing 12-hour days going from work to grad school to the gym, like I like he did do a lot more of like the cooking, the cleaning, like those kind of things during that period. Like there are often periods of relationships, friendships, romantic, otherwise, where things aren't always 50-50. I'd say for the most part, as I said, like things should be very reciprocal, but keeping in mind that it's kind of an overall average is how I like to think of it. If your relationship averages out to being pretty even, then you know you're having that reciprocity. Like you know that your romantic relationship is strong, your friendship is strong, and what have you. But when it seems that there's always kind of like a begging for more or like you feel like your needs aren't being met or, you know, when you get to that period where you're going through a rough time like I was, that they're not stepping up and supporting you, that's a pretty strong indication it is time to walk away. And that is so much easier said than done. I know I'm preaching this and I didn't walk away after so many horrible experiences. I did need this period of my life to remind me of this life lesson that I have the power to walk away. You know, I, anyone can walk away from something or someone that is no longer serving them, whether that is a friendship, a relationship, a job. And obviously there's a lot of logistical, realistic, real life factors going on, right? Like, Obviously, I'm not saying it's easy to walk away from from a job. There's a lot of financial logistics involved, and it's not easy just to pick up and move somewhere. Like, not saying that kind of flippantly, but do you want to say you have it within your power to set boundaries with people in your life? You have it within your power to kind of evaluate who's in your life, what's in your life, what you're doing with your life, and what is serving you, what is draining you of your energy versus what's filling you with positivity and support because then you do have the ability to kind of realistically evaluate what can I walk away from one of the other main lessons that I've learned from my dad that really helped me through this period and just helps me in life in general is actually more of a Jewish proverb than a lesson per se but this too shall pass and essentially it has a double meaning that I think is just so beautiful of reminding you that moments of joy and moments of happiness, like those can be fleeting. So like enjoy the present and kind of hold it on to those moments. But then also it's reminding you during difficult times that you will endure your worst days, that you have the fortitude to get through whatever you're going through, whether it's a day where you're just not having a great work day and it's, you know, aggravating you, everyone's getting on your nerves, that's going to pass. Whether it's something that's you know, really freaking devastating, like ending a relationship with someone that you thought you were going to be with forever, like that too shall pass. Like whether it's a period of like 
anxiety and trepidation and questioning your worth, that will pass. And then on the flip side, as I said, those great moments, like, don't take them for granted. Like, I'm really lucky. I'm at a period of my life. So many of my close friends are in the area. I see them frequently. And that's where we are in life right now. But I know that that's not going to be the stage where I'll at forever. You know, like, I have friends who are engaged and getting married. Friends are moving away. Just different changes in life happening. And I think it's such a beautiful reminder just to enjoy the season of your life for what it is and just enjoy everything as it is, both the good days and the bad days. But I will say this is more, as I said, a little bit more of a mantra than a lesson. But I, for me, it's so invaluable of just remembering on those really tough days, especially for me, is when I do think about this more, but it will pass. You will get through it. You will be okay. And it's kind of a reminder for me to have this like almost blind faith in like myself, this blind faith in the universe, this blind faith in just my future. Like it will all work out how it's meant to. And just kind of having that blind faith has done so much for me. Like I am someone who like overthinks, quickly becomes anxious and quickly spirals into, oh my God, like this is the end of the world. You know, like I think that friend's mad at me. Like she's never going to talk to me again. When people say don't jump to conclusions, I have already jumped off a cliff into a ravine. I'm at the worst imaginable worst case scenario. That is just how my brain operates. And I have spent a lot of time reframing that into trying to be more positive, more optimistic, not as anxious. And part of that is really the saying for me of reminding myself like this moment of discomfort and like the immediate anxiety I feel it will pass, reminding myself it will be okay, that this worst case scenario is just that, a scenario I've made up in my head. It is not reality. And just sitting in the present moment with my discomfort and knowing it will pass. And then as I said, like, it's also really just been a good reminder of when everything's going great, like, don't take it for granted. Like, I found a lot of beauty and simplicity this year. I found a lot of beauty in the days where things are quiet because there are going to be times in your life that are so busy and so hectic. You don't really have time for yourself. Like those periods of your life when everything quite literally is going to hell, like everything with my dad, everything with Charles. And then I'm not sure if I've actually mentioned, there was also just like a slew of like different things that happened to me this year. Like, let's see my apartment flooded while my dad was in the hospital and was uninhabitable for a month. Um, also around that same time, someone hacked into my bank account and stole thousands of dollars of my savings. And that was a whole mess. And then just like other kind of random annoyances of this year, like have missed flights, have had my car break down while I was driving it. You know, like those unexpected things, um, some really random things like getting punched in the face by a random man in DC. Anyways, point being is I think this saying has really helped me stay calm and navigate those situations because it reminded me this is out of my control. Like I can control what I can, but everything else will pass. Anyways, I could go on and on about this and all the life lessons that I've learned from my dad all day, every day. And I'm sure I'll incorporate others into future episodes, but the last one that I really wanted to share is how important it is 
to be your own favorite person. And when I say that, I'm saying that especially towards young females who I feel like oftentimes we grew up with this giving mindset of, you know, giving so much of ourselves to others, really prioritizing other people's needs, really always being nurturing, always being caring. And those are great qualities to have. But I think sometimes we forget to put ourselves first, you know, really giving yourself permission to wake up in the morning and say, what will bring me joy? What are my needs? Like, I was kind of always raised by my dad as, like, remember, like, how important self-love is and how important it is to be able to stand on your own two feet, to be your own greatest advocate, to be your favorite person, to believe in yourself. And for me, that's really, you know, allowed me to kind of look at myself as someone I'm responsible for taking care of. Like on the days where I don't want to do the things that I know will benefit me, like I don't feel like cooking dinner or the days I don't feel like going to the gym or the times where I'm kind of spiraling over something or the times I'm having these like negative thoughts, really I'm able to kind of take that step back and say like, this isn't how I treat my favorite person. This isn't how I would treat someone I'm responsible for taking care of or like knowing hey, like, this isn't how I would talk to my favorite person. Like, these negative things that I'm thinking about myself or saying to myself, these aren't things I would say to my favorite person. Really just kind of having that almost, like, aerial view of yourself, of your life. Treating yourself like you are your favorite person that you have to nurture. Like, you have to fill your needs and... No one else is going to do that for you. There are obviously people that like add to your life, whether or not it's a romantic partner or your friends or your family. But at the end of the day, while you do have like certain needs met by those specific relationships, like with friendships, with partners, at the end of the day, it is so important for you to be your own source of happiness, for you to be your own source of emotional safety Because if you can't stand on your own two feet and if you can't rely on yourself and know that you're capable and kind of take care of your needs to curate your own happiness, you're going to always be trying to find it from an external source. And that's just not healthy for you in the long run. Like this is maybe, this might be a silly example, but I recently like went on like a solo trip for a few weeks to Europe and like I plan on doing another episode on the trip as a whole, but there were a lot of stressful moments that transpired over this trip. Like I almost missed my flight. I wasn't sure if I was going to make my connection. I waited for hours on the way back to the U.S. and the customs line, like all these different factors, right? And like in those moments, I kind of was like, oh, it'd be really nice for someone to be here and telling me it'd be okay and like comforting me. And then I kind of just like did that for myself or like, I had this moment, and maybe this is a silly example, but like I woke up one morning on my trip and I was like, I really just want like an iced coffee in bed. And like obviously, yes, it's it's a little different if you're like, I just want someone to like bring me this iced coffee. I don't have to get out of bed. But I was thinking about how nice it is, like, you know, when like a partner brings you a little treat, like brings you a little iced coffee, brings you a croissant. And I just got up and I went and I got myself an iced coffee and I got myself a croissant. And then I went right back to bed and I drank it and I ate it in bed because that's how I wanted to do it. I think we sometimes forget that all the love languages 
that we practice on other people, like gift giving, words of affirmation, all those things we can also practice on ourselves. Like self-love is giving ourselves those gifts, giving ourselves those words of affirmation, and really just loving yourself as your favorite person. And I won't go into it now because this is getting a lot lengthier than I intended, but I'm going to do another episode um, kind of on like my mental health journey from this year, um, like about me trying different medications, but also just like the habits that I found have really helped my mental health. And one of those is really just practicing self-love and affirmations because I really do think everything kind of starts from within. Everything kind of starts from how we're viewing ourselves and that impacts how we view the world, how we view others, just our outlook in life. So I'll talk about that another time a little bit more. I hope that all of this didn't come off as too preachy or too much of a sob story and that something I said was maybe actually helpful. Um, That said, all of these lessons are much easier said than done. And I'd be lying if I said I practiced all of these things even close to perfectly. Like I have to make a conscious effort every single day to keep these lessons in mind and to try to be the best version of myself. That said, nobody is perfect. And I think something really important to remember is to be compassionate towards yourself on the days where you might not be your best, which as I said, for me is honestly most days, like I've had moments where I just completely spiral over things, like where I still, you know, have like a pretty negative mindset. I've had, you know, days where I lash out at others. Like I've done some pretty crazy things this year where I kind of took out my own emotions on others. I projected feelings onto others. But I think what's really important is not judging yourself based on your worst days and giving yourself compassion for the fact that you're just doing your best. We're all just doing our best. But with all these lessons, you can take it or leave it, take what you need, leave what you don't. But I hope everyone found this somewhat entertaining. If you didn't, I don't know what to say. This is just the chaos that is my life. But if you did find it entertaining and you did take away some lessons then feel free to follow along, hit the follow button, and share with a friend.